0: morning Grace family. I neglected to say this last week, but at this point, children up through, with your parents' permission, children up through grade three are welcome to head out to children's, to junior worship. Someday I'm going to get that speech down. (laughs) And for the rest of us, let's take a moment and let's prepare our hearts for God's word with prayer. Father, we come before you and we thank you for speaking your word to us. But more besides, we thank you for washing us with the water of your word by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you now cleanse us, rid us of any impurity, render us clean, and wash us with your love so that we might be better able to love others and love you most of all. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Welcome. If you're a visitor with us, thank you for joining us. Welcome. I'm Pastor Gordon, if you don't know me, and we're working through John, and we're coming now to John chapter 13. We're looking at verses 1 through 20, so I encourage you, if you have a Bible, open it, turn it on, scroll to, click to, get to John 13, 1 through 20. Friends, every Christian in this room underestimates how much Jesus loves them. Every Christian in this room underestimates how much Jesus loves you. I do, you do. You should always remember that ultimately what drew us and what draws us to Christ is not anything in ourselves. You didn't come to Jesus because you were smart. You didn't come to Jesus because you were rich. You didn't come to Jesus because you were poor, white, black, Republican, Democrat, anything. You came to Jesus because of Jesus' love, Jesus' kindness, Jesus' mercy. He drew you to him. And the main idea of today's message is Jesus' love changes sinners into saints. The main idea of today's message is Jesus' love changes sinners into saints. And I have a question for you. I asked a question back in chapter 11. Well, I've got another one for you. How would my life be different if I knew how much, how perfectly, how humbly, and how completely Jesus loved me? How would my life change if I knew how much, how perfectly, how completely, how fully, how humbly Jesus loved me? So you can sort of set that in the back of your mind and come back to it, and this week, Maybe that's a good question to reflect on. We're gonna draw out from this passage of the untold riches that are in it, just seven thoughts, seven truths about the love of Jesus Christ. And the first of those is that Jesus' love is sacrificial. Look at verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If you knew that you were going to die in one week, what might you do? I think some of us might panic. We might hurry about trying to put everything in order. we try and get things set up, make sure that everything was just right. Some of us might just grieve. Shocked. We had assumed that we were going to have such a long life. There's so much to do. and I'm going to die now? Some of us might be relieved. Some of us have labored so long with so many hard things that you'd just go, oh, thank you. And some of us might just try and scratch a few more items off our proverbial bucket list. But note what Jesus does. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and this is not, as I said, it's not a Han Solo bad feeling about this. He knows. He providentially, God ornate knows what he is here to do, and he knows that his time has come. He knows what is coming. When he knows that, what does he do? He chooses to love his disciples, even to the bitter end. The love of Jesus Christ for you is fundamentally sacrificial. He is concerned about the good of his disciples. He knows what they need, and he determines to give it to them. The love of Christ is fundamentally sacrificial. It is fundamentally others-focused. The love of Christ is like that of the fireman who keeps going back into the burning building at great enormous personal risk to his own well-being, thoughtless of his own well-being even to a point, so that he might bring out those who are endangered and incapable of escape. Jesus lived in light of his death. For those of you familiar with Jonathan Edwards, you know Jonathan Edwards wrote down a list of resolutions, one of which was resolved to think often upon the time and the manner of my death that that I, by it, might be moved to a practice of godliness. Wanted to live in light of his death jesus lived in light of his death he decided how he was going to relate to other people based on the fact that he was going to die on god's purpose for his life and based on their need those two things came together to dictate how jesus dealt with the people that were around him and now i have to catch us right at the beginning of this sermon because there is a tendency, and sometimes it's thoroughly appropriate, when we apply this passage especially and this sermon in particular, there is a tendency to say, as Christ has done, so should we. Christ loved others sacrificially, so I should love others sacrificially. And thats it's so close that, yes, in a sense, that is where we're going to get, but how we get there really matters. Friend, I want to remind you of what we've learned over the last few weeks, that no one will be able to live, enjoy, or exhibit the life-giving love of Jesus unless and until they have embraced and been changed by that same love. You will not be able to do as Jesus did until Christ has come alive in your heart. You will not be able to love and live sacrificially for others, as Christ commands his disciples to do, until Christ dies for you and renovates you by his love. This sermon is not self-help. This passage is food for faith. A Christian life can only come by way of the cross. So first, Jesus' love is sacrificial. But secondly, Jesus' love is perfect. When We use the word perfect. We have, in English, we often think without fault or without error. We'll come to what it means completely. We'll come to that. Look again at the end of verse 1. Jesus' love is perfect. Look at the end of verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. That he loved his own who were in the world means that despite Jesus' majesty and perfection. And every now and again, it's good for us to remember the very first chapter of John. This is is the word of God that was with God in the beginning, that created all things. This is the grace, the light, the truth of God. This is the pure God, God of true God, light of true life. This God, Despite Jesus' majesty and perfection, that he loves his disciples in the world means he condescends to love broken people. Now, Sometimes we imagine that somebody who condescends is someone who thinks that they're better than us. But usually when theologians use this term, they don't intend an air of elitist snobbery. Instead, they mean that Jesus willingly, happily, and joyfully accommodated to our weaknesses and our frailties. Like a father might get down and wrestle with his children gently, accommodating himself to their frame, their stature, and their strength. He condescends to their abilities, and he does so joyfully and with kindness. That Christ loved them to the end means that Christ loved them perfectly or completely. The word is telos. It means absolute, complete, full. Jesus' love for us is never half-hearted. Jesus' love for us is never incomplete. There's lots of times where we might feel as though Jesus' love for us isn't the way we expect or the way that we want or sometimes we don't even feel like we're feeling it at all. Sometimes it works in ways that we don't expect. and As I think, for instance, if the disciples had any sense of what was about to happen in this passage, I think they might have had a different response. I think they may have said something like, Jesus, if you loved us, you'd stop Judas from betraying you. Stop this business of washing our feet and expose the traitor. let's change the room that we're meeting in don't go to the Mount of Oz what are you doing you're the Messiah so in a strange way they may have felt if they knew what was going on they might have looked at what Jesus did and said this isn't loving this is foolish but Jesus is not about their business That Jesus loves you completely doesn't mean he's doing exactly what you think he needs to do in order to love you. It's that he's doing what God wants him to do in your life, to love you. He's about the Father's business, not ours. And he's more interested in our ultimate good than in our immediate comfort. So my point is that even though Jesus is not physically present right here, right now, We can be confident of his love. That he loved those who were in the world means he loves us now, right now. Those of us who are in the world are loved by Christ. We can trust also that Jesus loves us precisely to the degree and exactly in the way that we desperately need. His love is perfect. His love is complete. He loves us to the very end. Now I think, right, that we should take a moment just briefly to consider the nature of Christ's love here. I'm not trying to draw out a doctrinal point for its own merit. I'm trying to raise your esteem for the love of Christ for you in Christ's church. If you look at the phrase, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That means that while there is a sense in which Christ loves all people, There is a sense in which Christ loves all people, yet there is another more particular, more effective sense in which Jesus loves his own people. And this is a theme that we've seen throughout John's Gospel. It helped us to interpret Jesus' words in chapter 12, verse 32, when he said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all... We had to supply what? To myself. All people, well, we said all my own. I'm going to draw the church to me, in essence, he says. And it's why he says in verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. And then again in verse 18, he'll say, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. So there's a sense in which, yes, Jesus loves all people, but there is a sense in which his love is more particular and more effective more pronounced for his people. And that's why in this whole story and throughout the Gospel of John, we have to avoid confusing symbols with substance. That Jesus washes his disciples' feet is a symbol of the work that he'd already begun and that he will effectively achieve in the cross. Even though Jesus washed the feet of Judas, willingly, mercifully, and lovingly, even though Judas actually participates in the Last Supper in some sense, yet Jesus' love, though it was very real, did not produce repentance in Judas. Judas, very much like the crowds of chapter 12, had under the influence of Satan hardened his heart against the goodness of God's grace. And while Jesus loved Judas, it's very true, Jesus loved Judas, he loved Peter with a greater soul-transforming love. Now, this is not because Peter was more deserving than Judas. We shouldn't arrive at the conclusion, oh, Jesus picked Peter because Peter was better. And we don't know why. And we shouldn't. It's simply not ours to know why Jesus set his effective and persevering love on one and not another. Instead, we should be careful never to mistake a sign for its substance. That Jesus washes your feet has no immediate real Effect on you. Judas got his feet washed, but he was not clean. Friends, some of us, you know, we, we don't want to confuse baptism, the sign, for what it actually signifies the, a transformation of a heart. You, you can get plunged under the water all you want. That doesn't change your heart. We hope that it's a sign of what's happened in your heart, but we mustn't con, uh, misconstrue a symbol for its substance. So, friends, we should pray fervently for God to soften our hearts and to thank him for his gracious kindness towards us in Christ. Whenever we look at Judas, we should say, but for the grace of God, there go I. And in simple terms, you should be concerned only if the love of Christ offends you, because that's what happened to Judas. He received the same kindness and care, in one sense, from Christ. But whereas in Peter, it made Peter want more of Christ, in Judas, it made him determine and resolve in his heart to destroy Christ. So if the love of Christ offends you, that should concern you. But if you want to know the love of Christ, if you want to be cleansed by his kindness, then his love is already at work at you. And no one is ever turned back from the rivers of God's healing grace which leads us to our third point. So his love is sacrificial, his love is perfect. Third, Jesus' love is merciful. Look at verse two, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. There's two things to note there. One is that Judas was already resolved in some sense to do this. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows what Judas intends to do, and he chooses still to treat Judas the way that he does. Second thing, though, is that the Gospel of John astonishingly makes no mention of demons or their activity until this moment. Every other Gospel, Jesus is fighting with demons. He is struggling with the spiritual powers of darkness. Not John. In John, the silence is almost deafening. Where is it? I think it's because, I don't know, I'm not John, but I think it's deliberate. I think John wants us to grow in our estimation of the heinousness of this decision. This is a pernicious wickedness against the glorious and good Son of God. John wants us to know, wow, we are all, yes, depraved. It takes the wickedness of Satan to want to destroy the only Son of God. While we know that the devil is always at work, and while we know that the devil is not responsible for our wicked choices or our bad behavior, yet we know that he influences us to sin. So while John seems to shock us in this moment with the abhorrence of Judas's decision, the emphasis of the passage is not actually on Judas's wickedness. So while we could, you know, spend a sermon on it, that's not really where the passage goes. The passage is focused on Christ's love. The point is that if Judas deserves God's wrath, it doesn't mean that Peter doesn't. Everyone in that room is equally deserving of the wrath of God. It means that we should have a posture in our hearts. When we look at those who appear to be the enemies of God's grace, who appear to be the enemies of our own person, who seek our own harm and hindrance and hurt, and that in the love of God, we can say, but for the grace of God, there go I, and I long that God would be merciful to them. Friend, consider Jesus' kindness. Consider Jesus' merciful love and what it means for us who follow him that Jesus washed the feet of the man who betrayed him to an agonizing death. Some of us perhaps were teachers. Many of us were parents. Some of us have labored in our jobs to train someone up in a certain way. We we taught them. we, We showed them everything we knew so that they would do well in that particular profession or that particular way. We shaped them. We did everything we knew to do. What heartbreak is it when the student betrays the instructor? When the student says, no, your way is not right. It is not good. It is not bringing about what I want. And so I'm going to go this way. And yet what does Christ do? He washes his feet. He even feeds him. Friends, Christ loved us in such a way that we can be and we should be the most merciful of all men. We can be merciful even and especially to our enemies. I will restrict the names to protect the guilty. I was once in a church where during the prayer time, an individual made an announcement as it were and said, you know, thus and so many churches were burned down by Muslims this week and we should pray that doesn't so many mosques will be burned down and my heart just broke far be it from the lips of a christian to wish god's wrath on the enemies of god's grace i was an enemy of god's grace i was an enemy of the cross but christ was merciful to me and so we should also think we should be of all men the most merciful should love our enemies, for Christ loved us, because Christ's love is merciful. Fourth, Jesus' loving service flows from faith. Look at verses three and four. Look at verse three and following. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied around his waist. There are two places in this story where we are given a cause for Jesus' love, and both of them are kinds of knowledge. The first one is in verse 1, where we saw that the root of his love came from knowing that his hour had come. Something that Jesus knew changed the way Jesus behaved. And here, we see it again. In verse 3, we see how Jesus' knowledge, his Doctrine, if you will, that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Because of that, he girded his loins and set about the business of serving his disciples. It spurred his activity. Jesus knew, first of all, his doctrine, that everything was his that nothing was going to be lost by taking the time and effort at a time as critical as this to do something so loving and self-sacrificial. Nothing was going to be lost by this act of humble love. Instead, there was much to be gained. And in fact, it wasn't about what he was going to gain by the act. It was for his disciples. He knew that the Lord had given him everything. It's almost amusing to me when Satan comes to Christ in the temptation and says, look at all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give them all to you if you'll just worship me. You have to think Christ is being like, they're already mine, buddy. (laughs) And it informs his decision. We see it right here. He knows that everything is his. He knows that all the riches in the heavenly places are his. He knows everything has been given into my hand. He can't lose anything by this act. He knew where he was from and where he was going. Well, that's an idea we've already studied in John. This means that Jesus was fully committed to the plan and purpose of God. Where he was from is, in some sense, who he is. Just like if I tell you I'm from New England, I'm a Connecticut Yankee, that tells you something. Well, he is from God. God is the one who sent him. And where he is going is what he came to do. He's going to the cross. So he knows, I am of God and I am going to the cross. And as a consequence, I need to wash my disciples' feet. My point is this. Our love, brothers and sisters, is galvanized and directed by what we know to be true about God. Doctrine matters. People say that doctrine isn't helpful. People say that doctrine divides. And while yes, all things, including doctrine, can be used in a harmful way, doctrine itself is not the problem. Because doctrine just means what we know to be true about God. And it is this heartfelt knowledge, this faithful conviction that fires Jesus' determination and his willingness to love. Ideas have consequences. And our faith is never futile what you know to be true about God, will inform the way you live. Here's just one example. A strong doctrine of God's providence, for instance. The knowledge that God has determined every day of your life, and he will provide everything that you need in order to accomplish his purpose for you, if you know that, that can help form a conviction from which you might conclude not necessarily, but under prayer and in the counsel of fellow Christians and in the context of a local church, that you should go and minister in a closed country where you might very well lose your life because you know that God has provided you everything that you need in order to serve his purposes because you know that your days are appointed for you already. Or it might cause you to act in a more selfless way as an officer of the law, or it might cause you to live differently as a doctor and a practicer of medicine, or it might make you a different kind of teacher who says different things in the classroom because you know that your days are in the Lord's hands and everything that you need in order to live out the life that God has given you, God will provide for you. Confidence that comes from right doctrine can overflow into radical, selfless, merciful, and loving ministry. Jesus' loving service flows from his faith. Fifth, Jesus' love is humble. Look at verses 4 and 5. Because our society differs so dramatically from an ancient Middle Eastern culture, it can be honestly difficult to grasp the enormity of Jesus' action here. Verses 4 and 5 detail how Jesus stooped to the lowliest task of a Jewish household something that by tradition was reserved for children or Gentiles. Washing the foot in a society without running water or organized sewage was remarkably distasteful work, but Jesus takes it willingly. When I was in seminary, I had to get two internships, and the first internship I went to the pastor of the church that I was a member of at the time, the local body of faith that I was a part of, and I asked him if he would be willing to receive me as an intern, and if he'd be willing to create an internship plan for me. And he said, yes. I was very excited, and he said, come in on this day and we'll, we'll talk about it. And that day I came in and he said, yes, your first task will be to be the janitor of the church. And he said, because any man who is not willing to clean the toilets in Christ's church is unfit to preach to them. So for the first semester, clean the church, love the saints by cleaning the church, love Christ by cleaning the church, and man, it was a good thing. You know how when you care for something, you grow to love it? If you've worked in the earth and you grow to love that land, if you've worked on a project and you grow to love that project, if you've cleaned something and cared for it, it actually gives you a love for it. You begin to love the people that are in it, you love what it does. Made it way harder to leave that church. The point here in this passage is not that somehow lowly tasks are in fact noble. And that we've just mixed it up, and that we really all should be janitors, and that that's what we should be about the business of, you know? No, the point is that no matter what our station is in life, Christ calls us always to be willing to serve others, always. Jesus says in verse 12 and 14 that he is their teacher and he is their Lord, that servants are not above their master. Jesus is not preaching egalitarian authoritarianism, like, you know, everybody's the same, there is no difference, there are no roles, there are no distinctions, and we should all clean each other's feet. That's not what he's saying. The point is not that foot washing is noble, but that true love condescends. True love is not proud. Indeed, true love is not driven or controlled by status at all that you're the leader or the Lord or the master or the servant should have no impact on whether or not you love someone else truly. True love seeks the good of others. Jesus doesn't clean their feet so that they will think more of him or less of themselves. Jesus doesn't clean their feet so that they will think more of him or less of themselves. Jesus cleans their feet because true love is willing to do whatever is required for another's good. Jesus cleans their feet because he loves them. I want you to connect that he loved them to the end with this act of service. Sixth, Jesus' love cleanses sinners. Let's read verses 6 through 10. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? and you are clean. Not every one of you. Now it is clear that since both Peter and Judas received the same care, that it was not the physical washing of Peter's feet that made him clean. But his heartfelt submission to Jesus' love at this point, I'm tempted to, I mean, a whole other sermon almost came out of, to a Jew. The idea that you will, you will never really ultimately, honestly be clean is such a form. I mean, the idea that you could just be clean, that, that's mind-bending. <laughs> for, for, for Jesus to say to Peter, I've made you clean. You are always welcome in the house of my father. Just take a moment, That I'm going to keep going with my manuscript. <laughs> There's, it was not the washing of Peter's feet that made him clean, it was his heartfelt heart submission to Jesus' love. So let's break this into a few thoughts. First, we must not keep Jesus at arm's length. We must not keep Jesus at arm's length. Peter is understandably embarrassed. And friend, asking for Jesus to cleanse you is an embarrassing thing. But Jesus insists that unless you let me wash you, you have no part in me. So friend, you need to admit. If you haven't already, and if you have already, do it again. Admit in your heart, you need Jesus' cleansing power. You can't clean yourself. You might be able to wash your feet, but the kind of cleansing that Jesus is speaking about is much more fundamental, and you need him. To do that, a Christian never graduates from dependence on Jesus. He's not like a bout of antibiotics that you take to get rid of the problem and then you just trundle on with your life. You you need Christ now and always. If you cannot rest on Jesus for your cleansing, you will never trust him for your obedience. If you cannot Trust and rest on Jesus for your cleansing. You will never trust him for your obedience or your new life. And the second element here is that you need to allow Christ access to your most unsightly self. You need to let him see the part of you that is the thing that you don't want anyone to see. The thing that you've kept hidden, even from your spouse, even from your children, even from your best friends. That part of you that you're afraid actually defines you. That part of you that you're afraid is going to one day break out and take over your whole self. You need to take that, and you need to bring it to Christ, and you need to show him. Don't keep him at arm's length. Don't tell him, Lord, you you don't wash my feet. Not this bit. I'll follow you. I'll learn. I'll listen to you, but don't you come over here. Don't you wash my feet. No. He needs... To wash your feet let him if you don't you have no part in him take up a posture of vulnerability before Jesus and his word that means letting Jesus rule all of your life don't compartmentalize your faith when I go and I have a, 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 a physical with my doctor I don't say like look at my hand and tell me if my hand is okay right it's embarrassing. I oftentimes have to undress. He has to look at everything. He have to see everything. But it's important. I have to let him touch me and feel me and know so that he can tell me what's going on. We have to be vulnerable to Christ. And you will find him kind but firm. Secondly, the way of Christ is at cross purposes, yes, pun intended. The way of Christ is at cross-purposes with our worldly and intuited identity. So we mustn't keep him at arm's length, and we need to recognize that it's at cross-purposes with our intuited identity. Peter needed to have his intuitive, his inherited, his cultural idea of how things should work between him and Jesus challenged and ultimately changed by the love of God, and so must we. All of us come to Jesus from some kind of context, and we come with these inherited ideas about what love is and how God should relate to us or shouldn't, and how we should relate to other people or shouldn't, and what makes us acceptable before God or not. We have this immense amount of baggage, and we have to come to Christ and recognize that the cross and the way of Christ is at cross-purposes with that identity. We need to be willing to abandon certain inherited values in favor of a new Christian identity. That could be for some of us in the way that we understand our gender roles. That could be in rejecting consumerism. That might be that we need to support the oppressed. That could be that we need to avoid excess. There there are all kinds of areas that that the, the power and the work and the identity of Christ can push on in our hearts, but we need to let him do that. Thirdly, the cleansing of Christ is absolutely necessary. You can see that in verse 8. Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. Such a radical transformation to have our identity overhauled by Christ, to have a new and living love come out of our heart, requires a miracle. This is not just a passing decision. This is a renovation of a human being. No one can meaningfully come to enjoy or serve Christ who does not know in their heart how much they have benefited by Christ. I've already quoted J.C. Ryle before. I'm going to do it again. He says, if you do not love Christ, let me tell you plainly what is the reason. You have no abiding recollection of having got anything from him. This, this cleansing, is the Christian's fuel for life and love, the goodness of the love of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, the cleansing of Christ is totally complete. That's why he says in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash, but is completely clean. (laughs) Some manuscripts even leave out the except for his feet. We won't get into the text criticism of it at the moment, but the point is, is that, christ's cleansing is total and complete christ renders all who trust in him clean we are washed by the blood clothed in his righteousness, born again to a new life. This is not to indicate a partial or a conditional change, like sometimes I'm acceptable before God, or sometimes I'm his child. Sometimes I might have access to some of the heavenly riches. No, the cleansing of Christ makes you perpetually acceptable in the presence of God. You have ready access into his into his throne room the way that my son can come into my room at any time and ask me for help. Because he's my son. You, you are his sons and daughters. You have access through the cleansing of Jesus Christ into the throne room of God. That's why the author of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus was not performing scheduled maintenance on Peter's salvation. He was already born again. Jesus was introducing Peter to the most basic attitude of the Christian life. That friends, the cleansing of Jesus Christ's love is both radically necessary, but it is radically effective. It changes you. We need it to be saved, but we need it more to, be, to live, which brings us to our seventh point. Jesus' love changes sinners into saints. Look at verse 12 and following. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. A Christian lives out of the generous riches of grace procured at the cross. Friends, if you try and live up to the example of Christ's self-sacrificial love and service, you will always come short. If you try and live up, you will always come short. But if you live out, of the abundance and the life giving joy of Christ's love for you, you will find his strength sufficient. The force of this text is to bring us to this conclusion that Christ loves us in such a way that progressively, meaning over time, and increasingly, ever more apparent, forges a selfless and humble life, utterly committed to the gospel, grace, and glory of Jesus Christ. When Jesus' love takes hold of you, over time, slowly, but always and increasingly, the love of Christ is gonna produce in you a peculiar humility that loves Christ more and loves others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You hear that? The love of Christ is what controls us. Christians as a rule should be known by the world as the most radically selfless people. We should be known as those utterly committed to the good of others. This is the basis for the ethics of the kingdom of Christ, an entire spiritual economy built on magnifying and proclaiming and embodying the infinite love, sacrifice, worth, power, and glory of Jesus Christ. Paul lists this activity if we, were, if we were to ask ourselves, all right, it, but you don't mean literally, do you? Like, or if you do, I guess, we need to be about the business of washing each other's feet. So if we were to look in Scripture to try and figure out, what do you mean, Jesus, by washing each other's feet, where would you go? Well, you do a, a word search and you discover that Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.10 that this is among the things that a widow who is to be enrolled among the lists of the church, a godly woman, she's going to be known for something. She's going to be known alongside devoting herself to every good work and caring for the afflicted. She is also going to be known for having washed the feet of the saints. Now, he may have meant literally, but I think we can apply this more broadly. You see, washing the feet... Was not an exceptional task. It's not like you did this once a year in a, in a very important ceremony. Like, you did this every day. You did this when you came in because the streets were nasty and you didn't want that nasty in your house. It was a daily thing, but it was an undesirable thing. So, how can we, in the regular rhythms of our life, display Christ's glory and grace by the way that we humbly and lovingly serve others? How can we be known for washing the feet of the saints? I need to be. At its most basic level, this means that we can do everything to the glory of God. It means that giving someone a meal, a ride, helping set up chairs, washing dishes, putting on siding or taking it off. All of this is washing the feet of the saints. It means remembering God's grace and the sins from which we have been cleansed when we are called to bear with the uncomfortable weaknesses and brokenness of others. So if washing feet was a daily but undesirable task, it seems right that there are ways that we should and ought to express love within the regular rhythms of the community of faith that are unpleasant and are difficult because of the weaknesses and the brokennesses of others. But we're called to do it out of love. It means seeing and meeting the sometimes uncomfortable needs of others. That means wading into the messiness of life, not as a busybody trying to get dirt on them, but to help, even and especially in the harder things, both physical and spiritual. Physically when we arrived here a little under a year ago, I swear we all got sick I don't know how many times and it seemed like it just stuck around and you folks, you didn't even know who we were. and. You know who you were. I had people come over and take my kids because Emmy and I couldn't even get out of bed to take care of them while we were sick with a fairly contagious, nasty infection. That was washing the feet of the saints. Maybe spiritually, Scripture commands us to bear one another's burdens says that we need to help one another when we're caught in a sin. That's a precious but a painful task that washes the feet of the saints. It means guarding ourselves against any hint of prejudice. It means fighting for charity and compassion in Christ's church. It means earnestly doing all that we can to love one another earnestly from a pure heart like first Peter says. It means feasting our souls on the grace and love of God so that we can provide for others in their literal or their spiritual hunger. Paul, yes, speaking materially in 2 Corinthians 9.11 says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The reason that God gives us the nourishment, materially or otherwise, that he does is so that we can sustain others. Luke 6.45, Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if Christ's love takes up residence in our heart, our mouths and our lives and our whole beings will display this. Friend, I know I'm supposed to, when you go to preach a passage of scripture, anyone who does that, you ought to worship in that passage before you ever dare to preach it to someone else. And in this passage, while there's a lot of different places that touched my heart, the one that touched me the most and the one that I wanted for you Happens, as it were, right around verse 10, where Christ takes hold, I have to imagine, Peter's ankles and he's washing his feet and they're arguing over whether or not he's going to let him do it. And then Jesus looks up, I imagine, because it doesn't tell me, but I, I imagine, a little bit of sanctified imagination here, and he meets Peter's gaze and looks straight through his eyes into the bottom of his heart and he says, you are And I want you to know that. If you trust in Jesus Christ, he has laid hold of you. He says to you, out of the abundance of his perfect love for you, you are clean. Friend, if you don't know Christ, or if you're realizing this morning you don't really know him like you thought you knew him, turn to him. Humble yourself. Your feet are dirtier than you think, but Christ can wash them cleaner than you could ever imagine. And if you do know Christ, ask yourself, how ought my life to be different knowing how much Jesus loves me? Because if you are one of Christ's own, he loves you now. He loves you always. He loves you to the end. And if you've been loved by Christ, then you know where you're from and you know where you're going so that when the time comes, you will be able to do what God commands, to love one another as Christ has loved you. For by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Amen. Let's pray. God, have mercy upon you people and pour out the riches of your grace and your mercy and your kindness upon we poor sinners. Ready us by your grace. Fill us with your love. Animate us by your spirit and send us out the different people who love you and love each other to the glory of God now and forever. Amen.
1: Well, we, we didn't find the perfect song to follow that message. Um, so much that we've been reminded of. Earlier we sang Jesus strong and kind, and we see that in in the scripture that Pastor Gordon has uh, brought to us this morning. We sang Jesus, thank you. Um, we're not going to sing it again right now. But the song that, that we chose was uh, is a t- song that uh, if we'd have just the first slide up there, Grace. Speak, O Lord. And you look at that first line, it sounds like, well, wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to sing this before the sermon? And yet, the the sheet of notes that most of you have, and maybe you've been taking notes on it, uh, that sheet is to go with you this week. And uh, ask, ask the Lord to continue to speak to you this week. from the teaching we've heard this morning so if you're able this morning please stand with us again we'll, we'll sing uh speak o lord which has many many important references for us to hold on to